You can talk about the curious pornography without drinking absinthe, but I wouldn't recommend it. Pornography is tricky, especially now. In the last 20 years or so, certainly the last 10, uh, there's been a big critical push to reevaluate pornography, to almost follow the band's narrative in a way. Both Robert and Lowell Tolhurst have been on record as saying that they thought it was something of a monumental achievement on their part. Since the release of pornography and the about face that happens after The Cure breaks up following the tour in support of it, fans have been referring to 17 Seconds Faith and Pornography as the trilogy, which on closer examination, I don't know that that holds up. 17 Seconds is the about face to his childhood, let's say. It's it's Smith wanting to become more serious, to be taken more seriously as a songwriter and move away from some of that pub rock Beatles sort of jangle that he had started out with in good faith and childish naivete. 17 Seconds has a solid hit in a forest. This gets the cure out into the world. They tour out in Australia and New Zealand. They see America and they start to become known, a known quantity certainly in the music scene, and certainly within their label mates camp, Susie and the Banshees. But he also becomes friends with Sue. And more importantly, he becomes friends with Steve Severin, Susie and the Banshees bassist. Smith can't pivot. He can't decide to be something different. He can't reinvent himself if he's surrounded by the same people who've always known him that maybe aren't in on that evolution. Robert is someone who wants to play games, who wants to have a facade, a persona. He wants the detachment, that Bowie arch detachment, so that while he's expressing himself and he's expressing his convictions and they're real, they're also coming through a vehicle, a vessel. And around the time of pornography, Smith starts to make himself something of a vessel. His rage over his treatment in the press. There's some also dejection over the fact that the fans are so typic. They're such followers. The raincoat brigade that's coming to the Cure shows. I called out at one point when I wrote for One Week, One Band about The Cure's history, I did a long article about Jason Cooper. Jason Cooper becomes The Cure's drummer after the mid-90s and has been since then. He is the longest tenured member of The Cure, apart from Robert Smith and Simon Gallup. So the first time The Cure ever played Just One Kiss live, it was like in 2000, I don't know, 6, 10, 12. I don't know. It was sometime in the last you know modern Cure period. And there's this fan who just screams out, oh my god and it's in this way and in this tone this tragic goth brittle tone the overinvestment in robert smith as a theatrical icon the true goth figurehead That starts to rear its head on faith, and Smith hates that. He had, at this time, a pretty love-hate relationship with The Cure's audience. So you take a completely adversarial relationship with the UK music press, who are forced to deal with The Cure because they're on Polydor. You take a dejection over the idea that your fan base is responding to this precious, sad, wallowing, languid despond in a way that's not observational, in a way that is assumptive and participatory. It's that classic adage of a pop star thinking his audience is sheep. 
And what pornography becomes is just a vehicle for rage. It is a primal caterwaul from someone who feels they have no moves left. He's lost friends without meaning to, without behaving until this point in any sort of monstrous, shitty way. People are assuming he thinks he's hot shit. It feels like you're taking on airs or that maybe you've made a wedge of money. And even if you haven't, you're on the cover of Melody Maker, the NME. And so everyone thinks that you've made a wedge of money. There's an othering that happens there. There's the notion that you, because of your status or distinction, are different and you shouldn't be allowed to come back home and go down the pub with your old mates. Or if you do, you're condescending to them. All of these dead ends, the dead ends in his social life, the dead ends in his career as a musician, the fact that he's become an object of mockery in the press, Smith just decides he's going to hit the red button. You think I'm the most horrible, meaningless, ineffectual, moaning, middle-class, sub-Pink Floyd, wannabe, Joy Division, nobody? I'm going to show you what kind of noise I can make. I'm going in a room, I'm shutting the door, I'm going to drink and drug myself out of my fucking mind, and I'm going to tell you what I really think about all this. I'm going to make the most horrible noise you've ever heard. I'm going to create a nuclear blast of such cacophonous rage, you'll never forget it. I don't care if six people buy this album. I'll know I made it, and I'll know I made it the way I want to, and I'll know that I said everything I had to say at this moment, and then I'll fucking quit. That was his intention the whole way through. This is the end of the cure. I am gonna put a neon red fluorescent exclamation point on the end of this band. I'm gonna call it pornography because when I think about that word, I think about the pornography of society. You know, the collusion, the backbiting, the backstabbing, the jealousy, the bitterness, the impotence, the corruption. And famously, he writes the line, I must fight this sickness find a cure. That takes a serious pair to invoke the name of your band as the last screaming utterance on this turgid, miserable album of hellish miasma. This is how the whole beginning and exploration of pop life ends. I mentioned the presence of Steve Severin. Severin is a kind of a Mephisto figure. There are other people involved here. It's not like he only knew Susie and the Banshees. A lot of people may not realize this, but Smith was a massive fan of the Psychedelic Furs at this point. Their first three albums, to this point, I think only the second was out, Talk, Talk, Talk. Landmark records in terms of not selling out punk, not giving into the synthesizer heavy, neutral bass, mid-tempo wash of, of the Gary Newmans of the world, of even the Human League. Smith really respected 
that the psych first, you know, songs like on the first album, India, these really heavy, heavy tunes, dirges, six and a half minutes long, India is. And the drum production on, and it, Smith was not alone in noticing the drum production on Talk, Talk, Talk. This is where he starts reaching out. He's also a fan, totally unsurprisingly, of Killing Joke. Socially, he had met youth, and to an extent, they hit it off. Killing Joke's producer youth. So Smith has increased his network within the music sphere. This is important because it impacts the relationship with Simon. During 17 seconds, once Simon joins the band, he and Robert are drug buddies. They're sort of pushing each other. They're looking over each other's shoulder. They're, they're a gang of two that's going down the sort of drink and drug road and a little bit of the attitude road that comes out of a devotion to the way punk shook things up in terms of how you could behave. And Steve Severin starts kind of making Simon jealous. Severin is big into drugs and acid particularly and his presence is definitely getting Simon's back up. There's also the presence of a lot of other people in the Cure's universe. The Cure road crew has established itself as a pretty solid unit. They had known Simon. Simon had been in a couple of bands before the Cure playing around. This orbit gets a little bit toxic. And this is one of the reasons that the tour especially was a breaking point in terms of Smith feeling that Simon was taking the kind of Sid Vicious, rock star, bassist, tough guy swagger a little too far. And Simon feeling like Robert was, as always, sort of getting ahead of his station, thinking he was the reason the cure were anything and that he could come and go as he pleased and go talk to whoever he wanted. So there's a kind of a young jealousy. There's some toxic social dynamics. And then, then of course you have to apply all the stereotypical English stuff, right? We don't talk about our problems. We never, you know, our emotions don't get settled. Everyone bottles everything, you know, to an extent, you know, yes, there is a defined cultural aspect to that. Smith, Gallup, and Lowell Tolhurst have all said this about the pornography tour and about the problems surrounding this album. They're 22, 23 years old. They don't even know how to talk about their feelings. You know, this is not what people do at this age. Certainly not drinking and drugging 200 days of the year on the road, rock stars. They're basically plowing into a brick wall. So coming out of the infatuation with Psychedelic First Talk, 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 Smith reaches out to Phil Thornalley, who's an engineer on that record. Steve Lillywhite recommended to him and said, you know, this guy could really produce on his own. If you want to do something crazy, this guy's up for it. I, I don't know how anybody, even a working musician, even a musician with 
full exposure to the entire landscape of pop at this time could have come up with the sonic template of pornography. I say in the 17 seconds podcast, there's nothing that sounds like that record. That's true, but it's a subtle uniqueness. It's a uniqueness that almost needs to be defined for you. It's not like 17 seconds jumps out of the speakers and strangles you to death, which is what pornography does. Anybody with a music engineering or production background, the first three beats of the drum machine in 100 years. You just, wait, stop, go back, wait a minute. What the, f what is this? It's almost like having a studio monitor playing at the same time as a proper mix of the album. The room sounds and the reflections from the studio, and this was done at RAK at RAK, so there's already a huge difference in the room versus where they've been, Morgan Studios, which is like recording inside a woolen blanket. Pornography is painful to listen to at volume on headphones. It is physically painful. The, the ear fatigue that is produced by listening to this album on a decent stereo system with a solid amplifier. This this is meant to fill up a room, and it is really meant to make that room fucking uncomfortable to be in. One hundred years has just become a punchline. It's almost not worth talking about because all everyone says is the first line is it doesn't matter if we all die. Yeah, that's great. It also contains seven minutes of acid drenched LSD in your fucking eyeballs of mid frequency boxed out brutal triangulated guitar. You know, Smith goes back here years later on Disintegration with the title track from that album. I look at that title track from Disintegration almost as a fond sort of reinvocation of how far Smith had gone here. And it was almost like he was telling his younger self that that could be refined. You could produce something just as emotionally powerful without it being an affront <laughs> to the listener. I said before that faith finds its mirror in disintegration, but in many respects, it's also a, a refinement of pornography. In particular, I look at one of the B-sides from that period, the B-side to the love song maxi single, A Fear of Ghosts. Smith didn't even write this song. The, the bedrock of this song was written by The Cure's keyboardist, Roger O'Donnell. He brought it in as a demo and he felt like, you know, I missed the boat. I should have really had this done for Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me. It would have had more of a chance there. You know, it doesn't really sound like a Cure song to me. And when he says this to Robert, Robert's response is, as soon as I sing on it, anything becomes a Cure song. And there's a line in Fear of Ghosts that really says it all for me about what was going on with pornography. The further I get from the things that I care about, the less I care about how much further away I get. It's really not a mindset you could sustain, and clearly Smith couldn't sustain it. You know, the cure blows out after this. Smith stopped taking care of himself. Look at footage of him from around this time. Look at the video for Hanging Garden. You could land a plane on his hair. It's not even styled. It's just like stuck there. The makeup is on and off, but the makeup is more about just making his face this horrible visage. It doesn't become a character until the Love Cats, really. So they spend a month in the studio drinking pretty much around the clock, taking drugs, dropping acid. Famously, Smith tells a story that they built 
little houses out of beer tins and crap that he would find around. When they filmed Charlotte, sometimes they filmed it in a sanitarium. I don't know if he wrote down or actually took things that he found there, snippets of paper, writings, uh, you know, the, the sort of deranged ramblings of people who had been institutionalized. Smith's trying to find the bottom one way or another. People think I'm the next Ian Curtis, I'm gonna kill myself. I don't give a shit. Who fucking cares? I don't want to be 30 anyway. And that's really what pornography is in so many ways. It's a dare of the self. The thing that's interesting about that is that it doesn't tip to self-parody. Somehow Smith is able to retain this conviction in this torturous recrimination and rage. He's able to stay in that place. You know, certainly not 24 hours a day, but it's right underneath the surface. He can access it at any time. And you hear it in the vocal performances on every song on this record. There's really only two, maybe three songs on this album that aren't purely terrifying and uncomfortable to listen to for most people. A Strange Day at the top probably should have been a single. In retrospect, it's really surprising that Perry didn't choose A Strange Day. I'll be blunt, I think Chris Perry was thinking of Adam and the Ants and ant music and the prevailing use of huge thundering toms when he chose Hanging Garden as the single. Yet the Hanging Garden charted at number 39 on the UK charts, which is not blowing the doors down, but the parent album, Pornography, charted at number eight. This to me is still something I can't resolve. I don't care if Polydor bought out the entire goddamn record store industry. There's no fucking way you could get pornography to number eight unless kids were actually buying it. And in an unpleasant way, I have to say, the rapid success and evolution of Susie and the Banshees is what engendered a lot of people to pornography as a dare. Susie and the Banshees make pornography make more sense. You just have to be honest about that. The Banshees were getting into their booming goth glory days and The Cure definitely benefited from the association. Musically, socially, all of it. A short-term effect is upbeat at least. One of my favorites on the record. Maybe not a lot there structurally. There could have been a couple of moves maybe, but that's what pornography is about. It's all dirges. Starting at the top with seven minutes of thrashing like a tiger and just like the old days and it's just i mean every line in a hundred years is a fucking tattoo for a cure fan you know I, I think of pornography one of the big literary things i think about and i've never been able to uncover whether it could be the case i know smith read maupassant but to me i think of the horla you know i think of spectral, ghastly, fucked up, early psychodrama short stories about terror, you know, crime and punishment, psychosis, the fear of going crazy. This happens to so many thinking kids 
around this age. Watching video clips of The Cure trying to promote this album is pretty brutal. They did a collaborative, ponderous performance with a couple of ballet dancers. Someone actually wrote a ballet performance for Siamese twins. If this isn't an album you've heard before, I would say, you know, start with Strange Day and Short Term Effect. See if you want to go deeper than that. This album does have some light and shade to it, but it's, it's a relative light. <laughs> Otherwise, this album is just jet black midnight hellscape of acid-drenched moon reflections of people's faces melting. This is, you know, listen, I don't know if you ever experiment with drugs, but like, moonlight is a really fucked up thing. It's not the same as sunlight. And when you're high or tripping, you have completely different, really terrifying primal visions. That's all over the dirges on this record. Siamese twins, figurehead, cold. Those three are the murder marches of pornography. They're insistent driving drum patterns that will not stop, that get compounded by rising, punishing guitar licks layered over each other, louder and louder. The guitar work in Figurehead is so remarkable. That is a song you should absolutely commit yourself despite its sort of harrowing, shredding, aching screams of pain. Honestly, just, just truly unique, brilliant production of, of a song that has absolutely no commercial appeal and refuses to give in to ornate architecture, refuses to build itself into anything more than its constituent parts. He's just gonna make them louder and even more grating. That is true of every song on this record. You never have that all cats are gray piano line. You never have the dynamics, which even in such a slight way are present on Faith. This throws all that out. This is just punching you in the face over and over again for five minutes straight. Like all Cure albums to this point, pornography ends on the title track. Acid-drenched samples from films and TV. Poor Joe. Backwards masked reverse vocals. This whole artifice of an experimental song. Splintered in Her Head is sort of the first go at this. Pornography really becomes a truly experimental loop song. The, the way that the song almost stops, it almost dies before the finale, and, it, and it's mixed so well by Smith and Thornalley, and it does it in an unexpected way. It, it sort of turns on you. It's not done with you yet. It's a trip, this record. Pornography really is a trip. The psychedelic aspects of this music and of a lot of the post-punk music is definitely not understood nearly as well as it should be. All these fucking bands were dropping acid and getting fucked up. And then they start going down to the Batcave. They're drinking mushroom tea, psilobin. This doesn't get talked about. People seem to think that goth was a literary arch pose and that it was emotional. It was completely about fucking drugs. Punk had been about speed 
and booze, and then heroin comes in. All those things are sort of passe. They have the, the stain of punk on them. That's why goth is actually a hugely psychedelic movement. This becomes pantomime after pornography. When Smith does things like the Lament Flexi Pop single, when he gets together with Severn and they do the glove, when Susie and the Banshees do Hyena, the psychedelic stuff isn't out in front in the music with pornography, but it's there in the background. I talk about how Steve Severn is this kind of interloper causing tension between Smith and Gallup, but there's another person in the mix here who has an equally outsized influence on Robert and what direction he might go. It's Mark Almond. As Soft Cell, Mark Almond's had international top 10 hits with his new wave reimaginings of Tainted Love and Where Did Our Love Go? At the end of the Cure's concert film in Orange in 1986, over the credits, they play Sweet Talking Guy by the Chiffons. Smith was an astute student of girl groups and doo-wop, and this was as big an influence in terms of the types of chords he liked to use and changes as the Beatles or anyone else. The coy, cunning way that Mark Allman plays with imagery, the decadence and dilettantism of the really tawdry videos he shot for these songs, that absolutely had an effect on Smith. <laughs> of pornography sort of gives the lie to the idea that this was a completely focused, uniform statement. Yes, The Cure have spent basically a month in a total blackout locked in rack studios. At the same time, Smith is psychologically pulling away. There's a bit of calculation occurring. He's already debating a pop about face. And Mark Allman is a template of how he could do that. It's revealing, telling, and wonderful for fans that on the bonus discs of pornography and even the gloves blue sunshine, a lot of this material is documented. It starts out with temptation, which eventually really becomes let's go to bed when you turn it on its head. And for all the reasons I mentioned, all the tensions between Simon, Robert, the road crew, Gary Biddles. They have a huge bust up in Brussels in early June, and that's the end of the cure. But Robert's already working on Let's Go to Bed with Lowell in July. The idea that there's some sort of explosion and fallout and some vacuum where the cure doesn't exist is fictitiously untrue. Let's Go to Bed was released within months of pornography. It's something that people need to understand a bit better. It's also why the B-side, Just One Kiss, is as important in leading you out of pornography as Splintered in Her Head was on the Charlotte Sometimes single, leading you into it. So as The Cure breaks up, really, Simon's just out of the band is what happens. Basically, Smith takes one month off. So when I talked at the beginning about the problematic aspect of interrogating pornography's importance, it's a much murkier narrative than anyone is incentivized to construct today. 
Today, we want to make pornography the end of the goth trilogy, this breaking point, after which we evaluate The Cure's next move, this piss take, let's go to bed, and then The Walk, the dream singles, and Love Cats. Robert's hit the breaking point, and now he's rebooted himself. It's not true at all. He's been weighing these options all along, all throughout pornography. And that's part of the tension again with Simon. He sees Smith getting pulled in all these different directions, being socially extroverted, promiscuous, and it upsets him because Simon is so deeply invested at this time in his identity as the raging rock bassist with the studded silver belt and black leathers in The Cure. He would be the first to admit that he believed in it too much. And maybe the same can be said of the Raincoat Brigade that bought this album in droves to the point that it cracked the UK top 10. Mm -hmm.